Welcome to Delta, the podcast that dives into the heart of healthcare innovation. Each episode, we bring you insightful conversations with people who are at the forefront of the industry, researchers, policymakers, and startup founders. Join us as we explore the challenges, triumphs, and breakthroughs that are driving a significant change or a delta in the healthcare system. Today's episode is brought to you by Supportful. Are you looking to grow your team and hire engineers? Look no further. Supportful is a company specializing in connecting you with the right people with the right skills. Whether you are building a web application or a mobile app, Supportful can help. They specialize in offering high-quality remote talent and have established successful partnerships with companies in the US, Europe, and Singapore. Additionally, Supportful addresses the brain drain in Lebanon, aiming to retain young, skilled professionals in the country by promoting remote work opportunities. And now, let's talk about today's guest. Today, we have the distinct honor of hosting Dr. Karim Hanna, a family medicine physician whose passion goes beyond clinical practice into integrating AI in the healthcare and medical education. He is the program director at the University of South Florida's Tampa's General Hospital Family Medicine Residency Program. His expertise doesn't stop there. He's also certified in clinical informatics helping to close the gap between artificial intelligence and medical education through his thought-provoking newsletter, AI in MedEd. Stay tuned as we talk about his journey, insights, and impactful work of Dr. Karim Hanna in today's episode. Welcome. Uh, Thank you so much for being here today with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. So can you share with me your journey toward becoming a family medicine physician you went through a lot you have a background in medicine you have a background in clinical informatics how did you end up to become the program director of the usf Trumpa general hospital family medicine program so it's a great question there's a it's a very long story i'll try to give you the abridged version when i started medical school i was pretty sad on being a general surgeon and, and doing a surgical oncology fellowship afterwards uh when I experienced the family medicine, it really changed my trajectory dramatically. Um, and that's that's what stuck. Family mm-hmm. medicine kind of gave me the opportunity to do a whole lot of things and really be a generalist. And that's what I enjoy. I, I kind of enjoy seeing everything, doing a little bit of many, many different things. Now, going through residency, I still wasn't really sure where I would wind up. Was I going to be a hospitalist or, or do ER work? Or was I going to see kids or do OB or because you know, family medicine, you're trained with a whole lot of different skills during the residency training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I found my way into academics because as a third year resident, I did uh, an elective teaching medical students. And I, I found it pretty fascinating. It really grabbed my attention. I really enjoy mentorship. And I think that was key uh, because I was mentored quite a bit and I wanted to some, you know, somehow pay it forward. Both of my parents were teachers or are teachers and they're both retired now. And I, I thought there's no way that I would wind up teaching. Um, but, you know, when you look back and you're like, wow, well, it kind of worked itself out that way. When I started my, my job here at USF in Tampa, um, I was, you know, assistant professor kind of beginning, didn't really know a whole lot about what teaching was and still trying to stand on your own feet, you know, clinically. Uh, and you're kind of doing both at the same time. They just throw you in. So after uh, two years, I went and did something called a faculty development fellowship, which is essentially a, a quick way of doing, uh, you know, learning how to be a teacher. 
and that was up at UNC. So I did that for a year and it was remote. So I, not remote, but I, I would go up for a couple of times and then uh, a couple of weeks and then come back to Tampa, go up and come back to Tampa. And it, it was a, a fantastic experience, really shifted my career from being a clinician to being an educator uh, who happens to be a clinician as well. And that that was pivotal for me. And, you know, when you start kind of, I got a role in a preclinical course. I was a co-course director for our pathophysiology uh, course in second year for students around cardio and palm and renal. So that was, that was where I started the teaching, you know, big classroom, 180 students in the class, and kind of lecture didactic style things. And I found that I enjoyed really a whole lot of the kind of uh, smaller group teaching. And somehow I wound up ending up being the clinical uh, or clerkship director for our family medicine or primary care clerkship. And I got really involved in some work and we published some work on transitioning from fourth year of medical school to residency internship and how that transition looks. How are we bridging that gap? Because a lot of program directors really say that there's a huge gap there that, that needs to be kind of squeezed. So, you know, we're not really, we weren't really preparing our students, I think, well for internship. And I think we're doing a better job now uh, over the past maybe five years or so. So one thing led to the other, led to the other. And uh, then our dean decided to start a second family medicine residency program. And, and you know, I applied for the role and, and was uh, given the opportunity to start from scratch. And just actually last week, we got accreditation to be at Tampa General Hospital uh, for, for 24 residents starting in 2025. So not this cycle, but next cycle, we'll start accepting applications and, and going from there. So it's it's a long, long story. I tried to give you the kind of two-minute version, but that's that's a bit of my journey uh, getting to where I'm at today. Yeah, congrats. I saw that post and I was like very excited. And I, I see your passion in your posts, you know, writing and your newsletter, which we're going to talk about right now. And I, I'm really happy uh, for that as well. Like, uh, I think when you have that funding to have more residents and to grow your program, it's just like it becomes like one of your kids. You want to see it grow. Yes, <laughs> it's definitely become a project. And, you know, I have two kids at home and watching them grow is hard. It's not easy. It's difficult. I think it, but I think hard things are important. You need to do hard things. I think that's one of the reasons why we're taking this on. We want to impact our community here in Tampa. We want clinicians that are leaders. We want to build those clinicians. So that's, you know, a big, big impetus for, for us taking this program on. Gotcha. You have a background in clinical informatics and uh, how did this evolve? Like, how did you decide one day, okay, I'm going to go to clinical informatics and I'm going to use this in medicine? That's a great question. When I was, you know, growing up, I was always kind of the, the nerdy guy. Actually, in undergrad, I thought about majoring in computer science for a while um, and I had a kind of mm -hmm. a large, long history with loving mathematics. And that, that was kind of my, what I enjoyed most in school growing up. Mm -hmm. During, during uh, COVID, things slowed down quite a bit for all of us uh, clinically. And it kind of opened yeah, yeah. up opportunity for me to do some uh, some work in data science. So I, I did like a year's worth of some coursework in, in data science, uh, particularly around health informatics. Um, and I, I, I had a grant with, with some, some uh, colleagues at Moffitt Cancer Center here looking at the impacts of COVID on cancer screening. And... Uh, I used that grant or some of the funding uh, funded me to go kind of to a conference. So I got to go present at the conference. And 
it was at AMIA. Uh, I got to go to the American Medical Informatics uh, Association conference. It was the first time I had seen this world. I wasn't really familiar with this world. Uh, so it kind of was the data science experience plus this conference. And I was like, whoa, there's, there are people in, in tech doing healthcare. Uh, and I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. Are these people running healthcare companies? No, they're not healthcare companies at all, actually. They're running tech companies that happen to be in the health space. Um, and that really just grabbed my interest. And how how can I be more involved in that space? So I, I actually was fortunate enough to be able to sit for the board exam because of my involvement in our local, in our health system, on our EHR, EHR kind of, uh, you know, committee and so on and so forth. I got, I've had several involvements in, in research projects, kind of doing things in clinical informatics. So I was able to apply and sit for the board exam uh, without doing a two-year fellowship. So I think actually the, ne the next year is the last year that anyone can do that. Um, and then afterwards, you have to sit and do the two-year fellowship to be boarded in clinical informatics. So that's, that's how I got into the space. It was kind of a, an original just interest in tech. And then now, you know, I got boarded in, in CTI. Gotcha. So after next year, if people want to get like board certified in clinical informatics, they should do the fellowship. Like, do you have an idea what's the fellowship about, how the training is like? Yeah, it's it's a it's a two-year program, usually limited clinically uh, to maybe one or two days a week of clinical work. And mm -hmm. it's not actually sub it's not specialty specific. So you can come out of surgery or peds or wherever you're coming from and, and apply to these programs. And uh, they're, they're very much focused on different sorts of experiences, uh, some administrative work. They really prepare you to be in that CMIO or Chief Medical Informatics or the CIO, Chief Informatics Officer role. That's, that's really what they're setting you up for. And I, I like to describe the, that role as a, a translator between the, the finance folks, the, the coding folks, the people who sit behind a computer screen all day, and then the clinicians, and you're kind of in the in the middle between those three. That's that's what that CMIO role is. And there have been people in this role who have just kind of wound up in this position without the training. So that's why they allowed for the the, the exam to be taken uh, for folks to be kind of grandfathered in during the, through that practice pathway. Um, yeah. Gotcha. And um, talking about medical informatics and AI technology. Um, I really like your newsletter and I read uh, your newsletter every time you send it and I see how you use AI um, in medicine, which is something I do a lot. So what prompted yeah. you to start this newsletter? Like, why did you start it? What grew your passion? Why one day you woke up and you said, okay, so let's start this newsletter. Let's talk about AI in medicine. Yeah, so I'll say a couple of things to that. You know, being this far in your academic career, um, you really learn when to say yes to things mm -hmm. because when you say yes to something, you're saying no to a whole lot of other things. So I've tried to balance, and of course it's hard wearing so many hats. It's hard to balance um, what you can do. Your bandwidth is, is limited. Of course, there are only 24 hours in your day. Uh, but it was a, a good friend of mine. Her name's Sarah. Sarah's an anesthesiologist who started a, a group called Machine Learning for MDs or ML for MDs. And she's really keen on this space. And she was like, you know, Kareem, you, you have kind of two circles. And I found, you know, I have I had kind of the clinical informatics world and the, the medical education world as my two interests. So she's like, why don't you try to see where those circles can overlap? 
so that's that's gotcha. kind of how I got got into into that over that overlap, and that was the the beginnings of well, there aren't really many people in this medical education space doing AI or talking about AI, and that was one of the the kind of starts uh, for the newsletter. And, you know, I found that it's it's been a lot of fun. You know, writing my experiences. It's not you know rocket science. I'm just kind of writing what I've go, gone through or read about and and other people's opinions on things and. It's been a lot of fun writing those those newsletters. So thank you for reading. No, I agree. It's it's, it's a lot of fun even reading it because like uh, it's I'm very interested in AI as well. And when I see like other clinicians who are trying to figure things out and how we can improve uh, how we practice medicine, right? You mentioned one of your letters, I think, in one of your uh, newsletters, like you practice medicine, so it's something's going to change. Uh, it's not something that is constant, and that's important. And it's just like I look at into AI as a calculator like if i ask you that what is the square root of 3567 you're not going to do that by hand you're just going to use a calculator and that's normal but i think integrating ai as a calculator especially in healthcare met lots of resistance and um, that brings me to the next topic so i, I want to grab your mind uh, since you have background in both spaces um how how ai and clinical informatics mix with medicine how have these fields influenced the curriculum development in your residency program as a program director? Yeah, so because we're building from the ground up, we're very fortunate to kind of have a clean slate. We can really make a whole lot of things happen. So right now we have, we're, we're working towards building tracks for our residents. Uh, mm -hmm. They can do certificate programs, for example, in clinical informatics or in informatics, health informatics or in public health, or you know, even if they want to get an MBA, for example. And those certificates they'll work on during the three years. And then if they want to stick around as a fourth year uh, resident and kind of junior faculty role, uh, because most family residencies are three years, some are four. Uh, but we'll offer them the opportunity to stick around and finish their full master's degree and uh, you know, do some, some junior faculty things, teaching and so on and so forth, supervising in clinic. So we're, we're, we're building it in. The other way we're building in informatics into our, our, our curriculum is, is, you know, family medicine, our, our residencies are very outpatient heavy. So our, our residents are going to have panels and be responsible for essentially a population of patients uh, during the three years and have continuity with that patient panel throughout the three years. So we'll be able to look at their population's health you know, looking at the, wow. the the data the data from the EHR, how they're doing as clinicians, they'll be able to assess their work. You know, uh, pre uh, let's say Kareem coming into residency, how this panel was doing, and how they're doing a year in, two years in, three years into my care with them. You know, am I improving their, for example, their A1C outcomes? How am I doing on cancer screenings? How am I doing? You know, uh, you know, whichever way you want to you want to look at the data, uh, and, and that's going to take well. A lot of work because that's infrastructure that's not currently present in many health systems. Um, so we're, we have a, a head of uh, a research lead in our department that we recently hired who's going to be working towards maybe getting us some grant funding so we can seek out those opportunities in, in, in more depth. But it's going to be special. It's going to be really uh, you know something that we prioritize that informatics world and uh, you know so something that's going to be uh, uh, I think special to our residency program. Wow, that's that that's very creative. Like I, I really um, like this uh, that you already realize how important is this part of 
medicine, which is like AI medicine, and you are trying to integrate that. And uh, I think the continuity of care is also very important. It's something I didn't like understand during residency, like I trained in internal medicine. So um, yeah. we don't have that continuity clinic, but like uh, when, when I started doing oncology, uh, I think continuity of care is important, not only for patients, but for you as a physician being trained, you, you see the pathology and how it evolves over time. And you build like, you, you you know, your patient, right? Like you you can never, 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 ever know everything about your patient the first time you meet them. The first time you meet them, you know their illness. The second time you meet them, you know what they do for life. The third time you meet them, you understand how difficult the social situation they live in is, right? Oh, yeah. So it, it's, 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 it's something that comes with... Uh, with time, so I think that's that's really really uh, interesting, and that's really good uh, for residents um, and having that access to AI. Um, staying talking about residents, how, how do you integrate AI beyond clinical informatics when you are teaching residents and you are teaching medical students? How would you integrate AI in your teaching? Yeah, I think there are maybe three or four different kind of categories that we can group uses in. So mm -hmm. I think first there's like the clinical decision support category, mm -hmm. which is done prior to the teaching encounter. But for example, if we're in the hospital and a patient is admitted uh, who's septic and the, the, the EHR reminds us that patient is septic, you should start your sepsis protocol. Uh, that sort of, uh, that is AI working on, on our team, essentially, to cue us to a certain pathology that maybe we weren't aware of. So there's clinical teaching that, that can take place because of, uh, uh, you know, clinical decision support. In the, in the classroom, like, if you think books preclinically, um, ChatGPT in particular, if we're talking about large language models that are publicly available, we, we utilize ChatGPT to do a whole lot of things to make for safe environments. I think simulation is a great place uh, where ChatGPT can fit in very well for those preclinical students to work on developing their history-taking skills and which exam findings are significant for which sort of case. Um, and because it's so low risk, I mean, they can do it and practice it on their own time and time again. They can also utilize it to create questions. They can utilize it to review their, their PowerPoint slides. So many ways that it can be used in the preclinical. In the clinical setting, too, when you have medical students with you, uh, I've utilized ChatGPT to help them further develop their thinking. So ChatGPT is not the best always at cl giving clear-cut guidelines, uh, but they can utilize it to help develop their differential diagnosis, for example. And now with kind of the latest GPT-4, students can, can use pictures, can upload PDFs, can do a whole lot of different things to, to be able to utilize it as a, a sidekick. I think, I think like you, you mentioned calculator earlier, like it's a sidekick. It should assist us in our day-to-day. -day. It should assist us in our teaching, administrative tasks, clinical decision-making. Uh, that's how we can utilize it to its full full capacity. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Like even for me, like I'm I'm in fellowship and uh, I use ChatGPT heavily. Not only ChatGPT, like Bard, Binge, Cloud. Um, for example, like I, I just uh, like I had a 
some tests that I didn't know how to interpret. So I just like throw it into ChatGPT and it, it broke it down into like, you have to look into this, you have to look into this, you have to look into this, and that's the interpretation. And it was really good. And uh, other than oh, yeah. that, administrative things, like we create lots of PowerPoint slides and presentations in academia. I just take a text, put in ChatGPT, tell ChatGPT, create a slide with bullet points. Boom, it's there. And instead of wasting my time clicking enter, 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 bullet point, enter, bullet points, right? Um, yeah. So I think the users are enormous. It's the 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 list doesn't end. The list doesn't end. I re I really like what you're doing with it, um, and I think it, it just makes so much sense for folks to get on board. And then you know people worry about it taking over, uh, and I usually try to use the analogy of a of a printer. You know, people were using pen and paper. And then mm -hmm. we had printers come up at some point or, or, or you know, typewriters, for example, and then printers. Um, you don't lose the, I'm sure people were like, oh no, we're never gonna use pen and paper again. You still utilize pen and paper just in different ways. They, the, 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 the use the has changed. So as clinicians, you know, it's not like we're gonna lose radiologists, for example, that's been one of the, you know, frequent talks about, uh, you know, chat GPT and uh, open AI or, or large language models uh, interpreting image results or mm -hmm. interpreting slides, you know, for pathologists. Um, I think you're just going to have to, they're going to have to pivot. The The field of radiology is going to have to shift a little bit to uh, uh, utilize it and accommodate uh, how they can uh, best use it for patient care. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about physicians who are already in train, like in practice, like you are in practice, um, how do you think that, or can you give me examples about how do you use ChatGPT on a day-to-day basis when you practice in the clinic? So clinicians are a very difficult group of people to change their habits, particularly if they've been in practice for a long time. And you and I, before we started recording, we're talking about how, you know, healthcare is a big ship and it's very slow moving in general. Um, changing things are, are it's difficult to, to influence change. Uh, in my clinical practice, I would say I, I've utilized it for simple things, administrative tasks like creating letters for patients or, you know, to consultants if I need to write a letter for someone missing work or some, some scenario that needs a letter. Um, I've used it for interpreting results like you have. Uh, recently, most recently, I had a PFT done for a patient, pulmonary function test for a patient. Yeah. And it hadn't yet, it hadn't yet been read. So the 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 results were there from the tech, but I didn't have a formal read from a pulmonologist, right? Or someone signing off on the read. And you know, we know a little bit as primary care docs, we know a little bit about many things. So I, I can kind of I, I get the gist of it from looking at it, but I took the PFTs which are a bunch of numbers for those listening who don't know what those are. It's just a bunch of numbers with, with acronyms. So FVC, you know, FEV1 over FVC, all these, these acronyms. And I copied and pasted, threw it in the chat GPT, asked for interpretation. It was fantastic. It confirmed for me that this was not an obstructive process, told me the patient doesn't have COPD or asthma, the patient was good to go, so on and so forth. So it was, it was really nice to utilize to expedite things, even if it's not a formal, you know, clinician reading it, if we know just enough, uh, we can we can utilize it again as a sidekick. Um, and then you know you can you can use it uh, to to again administratively to respond to patient tasks. Uh, you know there are lots of AI companies now looking at just sorting out your inbox, uh, what is most important, 
to, to least important. And then just doing that, sifting through so you don't have 100 tasks when you open up your tasks. So lots of ways. Yeah, I can't agree more. I think when it comes to tasks, like it's uh, even like I'm not in practice yet, but like I, I think administrative things come with medicine when you are a medical student. Your email inbox is full every single day. You have to clean it. And then things get worse yeah. with residency. Things get worse once you become a staff. You are um, uh, like uh, taking care of patients uh, because like you get lots of results, emails. And so I think... Oh, finding a way of AI with some human um, interaction can help uh, to decrease that administrative burden and uh, filtering the noise out of the important stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, so one of the things that I do worry about, and I think lots of clinicians uh, worry about, it's like the ethical part and the HIPAA compliance right and the SOC to compliance and the information, like what do you think like are the ethical uh, considerations? Like, let's say I'm a physician, I'm listening to this. Okay, so I'm gonna go ahead and use AI. Um, like what are the ethical rules or what are the things I should pay attention to so I don't get in trouble? Yeah, so it's, it's not perfect. And I'm glad you're bringing this up because we always need to know that the coin has two sides, right? So we know, for example, um, when we're using social media platforms, the data that we are clicking on, the, the data that they are pulling from us is being sold to advertisers and so on and oh, so yeah. forth. So that, the, so, you know, we are the, the the product, actually. We're the ones being sold. Uh, our, our use is, is, is mm -hmm. being uh, traded for some sort of funds. So the, the concern there can be on different levels, but is it appropriate for me to utilize, first of all, uh, a sidekick uh, and, and helping make clinical decision making. And I, I usually respond to this by saying, hey, well, you know, you, you've used up to date, you know, you've used these resources, you've opened the textbook. Uh, it wasn't in your brain. Does that mean uh, you are, you know, uh, mis, uh, not communicating the, the, the truth that is what you know to your patients? You know, are you, are you leaving something out when talking to your patients? I think it's as long as we are utilizing it appropriately, uh, we can we can use it in our clinical decision making. Now, what about you know the ethics of like uh, the bias that might be uh, within these systems? Because these systems are only as good as the the data that was trained they were trained on. So we need to be aware of these biases or the the the, the possibility of the potential or the potential for the bias, so that when we're using it, we can kind of curtail or kind of um, adjust. Now, you mentioned also HIPAA compliance. I know right now uh, OpenAI or, or, or ChatGPT is not HIPAA compliant. I believe that Bing is, and I think within our hospital system, they actually block the use of, of ChatGPT with, on our networks, like our internal wow. networks. Uh, yeah, it's kind of painful. I, we can talk about that too, but with the intent of let's use a Microsoft derivative through Bing, uh, that will allow for, you know, they, Bing also uses ChatGPT on the on the back end, but will allow for a um, data sensitive kind of safe uh, HIPAA compliant way in case physicians or clinicians are utilizing it for with patient data. But, you know, if you're using it on your own, for example, I, you know, I use it on my phone. If a patient texts me or something, I use it on my phone very, very frequently um, and I can 
leave out the patient sensitive or the patient identifying information. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what we've done for years. If you're, you know, doing anything uh, online with, with patient information. So uh, it just takes, I think, a responsible user as a big part of it. You know, the, the, today, actually, the, the White House, I don't know if you saw, put out their recommendations for you know, they're the beginnings of some rules for, for ethical mm -hmm. AI use. And I think that's going to be the beginning of a whole lot of conversations. There will be committees, there will be uh, meetings, uh, all surrounding this concept because it's so powerful uh, and there's so much potential that there have to be the bumpers on the on the bowling alley and uh, the bowling lane, sorry. You have to keep the bumpers up so that people don't go out of control one way or the other and kind of can head in the appropriate direction. Well, yeah, I get I completely agree. Um, it's uh, it, it can be sometimes dangerous tools because like it helps you to link information together and brainstorm crazy ideas. Uh, I think the thinker is still a human being, the person who put things together. Like I think we have ability to think, but ChatGPT have ability to help us brainstorm better, uh, write things better, and it's it's there. Like it's why why we don't use it. So for example, like by leaving patients information from outside of the notes uh, let's say i dictated the note without mentioning any patient um related information but the note really like have like it sucks there is no time yeah. frame it's all over the place and instead of me sitting an hour spending it on this note i can just help ask ChatGPT to organize this note in a better way and then i can go and take care of another patient um yeah so those sorts of ambient scribes are going to change the game for us. Um, and I, I should have mentioned that earlier when we were talking about physicians. Yeah, what do you think about them? I, I, I'm really looking forward to hear your thoughts about ambient scribes. We, we, I've tested out a couple of them, actually, and, and they're fantastic. I mean, they, they, they definitely offload. I don't think they're perfect. I think they're really useful for folks who do a lot of note writing. I think in my practice, because I know, I want to say I know 95% of my patients really well. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. are pretty well so i'm able to kind of uh my my notes are very simple i'm not writing a whole lot of new notes i'm carrying forward things and and mm -hmm. it, it's already at a minimum i use a lot of templated things um so my note writing my burden of kind of documentation is not as high as some other clinicians i think folks who see a lot of new patients I don't know, like think orthopedic surgery, for example. There's mm -hmm, a lot yeah. of turnover in their clinic. Those 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 docs are gonna save a lot of time um, by using these like you know uh, these scribes. These ambient scribes are gonna do so much, and it's 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 wonderful because they're not just scribing now. You know, I was recently at a conference and I got to test out a whole lot of things with different companies. They're not just scribing; they're pulling in your your social history from other notes and implementing it. And they're they're doing medication reconciliation they're prescribing they're ordering labs for you automatically while you're just having the discussion on diabetes it's prepping the a1c uh you know pending for you you know what i'm saying then wow. they're, you know yeah they're they're billing and coding are automatically so all of these things are already taking place um and and it's 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 so far ahead that it's hard to grapple with like it's hard to imagine like Wow, we're, we don't need people doing double checking our billing. We don't need people doing this, that, and the other, and making sure that the codes are appropriate and making sure, you know, how are we going to set ourselves up so we don't need the prior auth later? You know, like so that the 
you know, we're not we're not getting the the peer to peer phone call later. The note is already adjusting for that, knowing that it's going to be needed. If I'm ordering, for example, some DME equipment for for my 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 patient, it's just fascinating what's what's coming down the pipeline. No, I completely agree. Which which conference was this? This was the family medicine uh, experience. It's called FMX. It's the double AFPs, one of the bigger family medicine conferences, and it was at Chicago. And this was just kind of in the display. Uh, you know, all all the different companies kind of having their their little uh, showcase uh, of what they're doing. And uh, there were more than a handful. There were probably ten or fifteen different AI uh, documentation sort sort of companies uh, doing amazing work. I mean, it's impressive to see uh, what they're doing. One of the companies, um, and you know, I, I I don't necessarily work for any of these folks, so I, I don't want to throw out yeah, the names. Mentioned their name, yeah. Yeah. Well, some people are are are, are pre-visit prepping the note by having AI have the conversation with the patient as if it was the clinician. Oh my God! And this is they, so sweet. Yeah. So it's like it's like a reverse classroom. You've heard of the concept of reverse classroom where I give you like an article to read and then you come and we just discuss the article. Yes, right? yeah, so, exactly. So yeah. So so they they have the conversation with the AI bot. It gets their medical history, all the meds, the social history. Uh, it's asking the HPI with all the ins and outs, right? Uh, mm -hmm, and creating mm -hmm. a, a living document so that when they show up to clinic, the document is done. Already there. You just read it. You can Already read it there. the day before. And you're verifying and you're making sure that everything is you know, appropriate as the clinician. The coding is done. The billing is done. Uh, it's just, it's it really offloads the administrative tasks. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, I can't agree more. Uh, like that's, I, I, I'm active also in the startup world. And I've, I've seen this like a lot. It's, it, it's something that needs to be sold. I used also like ambient scribes. Um, some of them are good. So I, I think they are better used in the outpatient setting. Uh, mm -hmm. Because like once you're in the hospital, you are rounding, you're going from one room to another. It becomes a burden to carry on a laptop or carry on a uh, iPad. I used to play it on my, like run the browser on my iPad. What it yeah. would work is like if they can create so the ones that I use, they don't have an app. So if there's an app you can download on your phone and you can use this. Yeah. Yeah. So the one I use, yeah, I use Dax. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think that's a nuanced company. And and that, that one was on my phone and it was super easy to just hit record and go for it, you know? And I think at the time they, they had some other people editing the notes on the back end too. So it, it was AI plus a human. Then it comes to me. Wow. So that's, it was, that's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty good. It was pretty good quality. Um, the, the the notes were pretty good when I was we we did a trial run with it. Yeah, I, I should give it um, a try. It's called Dex, right? D A X. Yeah, Dex. D A X. Yeah, and that brings me to the second point, or like third or fourth by now. Uh, adoption by healthcare. I, I want to pick your brain. It's like I, I think there are tons of technologies. Uh, that are very useful for physicians and for hospitals, but lots of there will be some challenges by hospitals and phys first physician. You mentioned that it's very hard to change their practices and hospitals because like there is 
no money made in like buying a more expensive dictation software when you have physicians doing the work for you and like you are paying them the same. It's just an extra yeah. expense. So, so let's take break it down. What advice do you have for physicians on adopting these technologies? Well, the first thing I would say is they need to try. Mm -hmm. Try and then and then they can decide if they want to utilize it or not. But the idea is that it is supposed to make your life easier. So if it's if it's going to make your life more difficult, then don't use it. That's okay. That's it's not the end all. But I will say, um, clinicians at some point uh, will have to get on the bandwagon. It's just like what happened with the the High Tech Act when they started the EHR mandates, right? Mm -hmm. People were, mm -hmm. when I was an intern, I, I had handwritten notes. In the beginning of my residency, we had oh handwritten notes. Yeah, it yeah. was wild. It was wild. I, you know, I don't, I don't remember how I did it, but I imagine writing 11, 13 notes, you know, they weren't great and the handwriting wasn't great, but still just the concept of 11, 13 notes every day in the chart, um, was painful. So, uh, when the EHR came, there were there's always like kind of your first adopters, the slower adopters, and then mm -hmm. everyone kind mm -hmm. of jumps on the bandwagon. Uh, and you know we know that curve. Uh, and your 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 first adopters are probably already interested, and we're we're the ones that are interested in having these conversations now. And there will be a group of people who will be slow to kind of convince them uh, them, and they need to try it out first. And then there will people be people who just never never want to really do it. But at some point, it's going to become commonplace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. I think physicians, like in general, like if it's working, don't um, fix it. But yeah. there, from my experience, like even like in like uh, I had some experience with young uh, like residents who like if we implemented a new software to the program, the, you you will have always like two three types of people, and there is a, like some segment in a population that no matter what you do, they will not like it, they will not adopt it, they will always be problem in the software that you are using. Um, right. So I think it's just like it is what it is. Um, you, yeah. you you can't change that. It's it's, it's statistics. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and um, so you you're in a leadership position. What do you think would like would would motivate hospitals or programs or clinics to buy more expensive uh, software that helps physicians, although it doesn't bring more money. Well, I'm sure you've heard of the, the the quadruple aim or the quintuple aim now from the IHI, where clinician wellness is key for patient outcomes to happen. You need good good for mm. patient outcomes to improve. You need you need kind of physician wellness to be part of it. It's it's this like for for the health system, uh, it's imperative that clinicians are doing well. Uh, and if you're not familiar with it, I can I can share some stuff about it with you. Yeah, later, I would but... love to hear about it. Just the quadruple aim or the, the quintuple aim is the most recent version of it, uh, or physician wellness is part of the, the Institute of, uh, on Health. Like that's, the, that's what they're recommending. So to keep physicians doing well, you need to decrease their burnout. Their administrative load is always tied to burnout. Uh, redundancy is tied to burnout. Uh, so those those sort of things the hospital can help alleviate. And in so doing, the hospitals will see that hopefully improved physician wellness equals less physician turnover. Physicians are really expensive to recruit and very expensive 
when someone leaves a practice, the, the strain on the other practitioners that are still there is immense. So you want to retain your doctors. You want to retain your doctors. It's really important. So the hospital system should see the end value of physician wellness already. So this will just be part of that physician wellness package. Um, you know, the other thing is, if I am saving 20, 30 minutes, I know this is not the answer that physicians want to hear, um, but if I'm saving, you know, 10 minutes of documentation on every patient I see, that might allot me some more time to do more billable services, right? So, so you know, they talk about billable real estate in clinical settings. They talk about billable services on my time. Um, and that's one of the things that now I have more capacity to see maybe an additional patient. That additional patient across the board every day for every every clinician will easily cover the cost. Uh, one of the companies that I was talking with this weekend um, was discussing the the five x. You know, they they say you know if you pay x dollars, you'll you'll make five x by using our 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 software because of the time and burden that that's what they were estimating. No, I agree with that. That's a that's that's a great selling point. I've worked in, in many hospitals, and like the last thing you want to hear or you want to see physicians who just like want to finish and they want to move to somewhere else like they don't want to stay in that hospital and that hospital will have so much hard time in recruiting a new faculty and as you mentioned uh -huh. i never thought about this point but you from your point as a faculty and you know how hard it is i think that's a very good point of very good way of thinking about it yeah i mean it's 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 very painful to have to you know hire and and it's turnover is a thing right like it's just a constant problem but we know that recruiting, uh, I know for specifically for family medicine, recruiting a family medicine physician is an expensive undertaking and it's it's it, it's painful for the system. So the health system knows these things. You just got to talk to the right people um, so that they, you know, want to keep the, their, their folks around by utilizing technology like this. Gotcha. Let's say um, a person who doesn't like technology and I want to start adapting to technology. I go and I subscribe to your newsletter what else i should uh, what else should i do like how can upcoming medical professionals physicians residents students be ready to thrive in the evolving landscape of healthcare because it is coming how can i how yeah. i can adapt to this technology yeah i you know there are lots of free educate there's lots of free education online i think uh youtube is a great place to start you know watching videos like this uh, it's a great place to start where we can learn about uh, what is out there and how I can utilize it. The other thing is, you know, it's time to roll up your sleeves and try something out. Um, create a, a, an account on ChatGPT and just ask it questions, clinical or not. See what it can do for you uh, so that you can uh, then learn to harness it. And, and you know, I talk about uh, being on the edge of comfort and safety and danger. So there's there's danger where like you don't want to be when you're practicing medicine. There's comfort where you also don't want to be because then you can miss something. And then there's some we're right in the middle that yellow space between the green and the red, right? That yellow space is where you want to be because that's that's how you're constantly learning. You're on your toes. You're you're trying to kind of take new things in. We have to be. If we're not if we're not growing, then we're stagnant. And stagnant you know, we know 
muscles they they fall apart when when you're just sitting in bed in the hospital for for days right so so we have exactly. to constantly be working to progress uh and that's that's on us it's i think it's our responsibility to be lifelong learners as physicians otherwise we're going to miss things and and patient outcomes you know as an oncologist you know like the the way we treat uh metastatic disease it now is very different than the way we treated it before uh oh, yeah, you know we sure. It's completely different. And depending on the cancer, the way we treat prostate cancer today is so different than we did 10 years ago. So so all of these things are changing. It's on us to stay up to date and, and stay on top of these recommendations. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think medicine and healthcare is like it's 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 a it's it's a journey. It's, it's a lifelong journey, it's a commitment. It's not something that you can um just like stop learning. So it's not only about learning medicine, it's also how to practice medicine. So the tools that you use are different and the tools that you use are not something taught in medical school. It's something that you have to learn by using in real life and real practice. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, med school is a, um, it's the beginner's guide. You know, oh, it's yeah. just the base basics. Uh, practice is so different. Residency is so different. Uh, real life is 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 very different than, than medical school. I agree. I agree. Anyways, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that. And um, thank you so much for all the advice um, you shared uh, today. And uh, I really encourage everyone who's listening to us to sign up to your letter. I love your letter. I, I love the advice that you offer. And also all the links for your page, your newsletter will be mentioned below. Thanks, Ruben. I appreciate talking with you. It was a lot of fun. And uh, hopefully we'll do this again. Of course.